This morning we'll be reading from Ephesians chapter 2. We'll be reading Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. <clears throat> and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Our sermon this morning comes from Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 to 15. It's Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 to 15. If you remember, um, this entire section of Colossians, really from verse 8 to 15... The main point of that is that we need to remain committed to Christ. Paul's already given us at least two reasons that we need to be holding fast to Christ, why we shouldn't leave Christ for anything else, especially no false teaching that seems so attractive. This morning we're going to look at Paul's third and final reason why we need to hold fast to Christ. And that is the fact that we share in Christ's life and in Christ's victory. So let's read this passage again. Again, we're going to start in verse 8. I'll read the whole thing to get the context, but we're going to be preaching from verses 13 to 15. Again, starting in verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So we look at this passage together, again focusing on verses 13 to 15. We see the main point is that we should hold fast to Christ. 
We should hold fast to Christ because God makes us share in Christ's life and also in Christ's victory. So we should hold fast to Christ because God makes us share in Christ's life and in Christ's victory. As we look at this passage, a lot of what Paul says here is the core of the gospel. And it's tempting for us to think that this sermon or this passage really applies to many other people. And it's true, people outside of these walls need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ that's presented here. But Paul in this passage is preaching to the Colossian Christians. He's preaching to those who have actually believed in Jesus Christ and have been gathered into his church. So the gospel of Jesus Christ here is also for us who believe. And it's a way of teaching us to hold fast to Christ. Now as we look at this passage, we'll see three points. We'll see that God raises us to new life in Christ in verse 13. We'll see that God forgives us in Christ in verses 13 and also in 14. And finally, we'll see that God makes us share in Christ's victory in verse 15. Now, as Paul begins here in verse 13, he's showing us that he is raising us to new life in Christ. His basic point is that God brings us from death to life. Listen to what Paul says. He says, And you, again, he's talking to the Colossian Christians, you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Christ. What what Paul is describing is a monumental change in our lives. Just imagine if someone you loved, just think about someone you loved who has died. Think about someone you loved who has died and imagine what it would be like. What would you feel if they became alive again? If God actually raised them from the dead, what would you feel like? What would your response be to what you've just seen? I think I'd be thankful. I'd be amazed that this was even possible. But it is possible. We see in in the Bible many cases where God actually does raise people from the dead. Think of the Gospel of John, and the raising of Lazarus. But something even more extraordinary than raising Lazarus or raising any other dead person is actually what is true in our lives as Christians. God has brought us from spiritual death to spiritual life in Christ. That is great news. That is the Gospel But it's only great news if you recognize that you have a great problem. Paul says that we are dead. We are dead in our trespasses and the uncircumcision of our flesh. Paul is basically saying that you are born dead. You are born dead to God. In the Bible, being spiritually dead means that you do not know God. You're not in fellowship and communion with God. You might know lots about God, and every person does know about God. Romans 1, we see in the world around us who God is and what He wants us to do. But each person, apart from Christ, does not know God and love Him. Paul says that this basic 
problem comes because of who we are and also what we do. We are dead in our trespasses and the uncircumcision of our flesh. We saw last week, actually, in the previous passage, that this uncircumcision of our flesh is a, is a way of talking about our sinful nature. Sinful nature, this is really who we are. At the very core of our being, we are sinful. Right? We're not cut off from sin. No, completely the opposite. Sinners are who we are. But then we also sin in what we do. Those are our trespasses that Paul talks about. Those times when we break God's law, either by doing what he commands us not to do, or also by not doing what he commands us to do. When we talk about someone being spiritually dead, we're familiar, I think, with someone being physically dead, and they're the obvious signs. But the same is true for spiritual death as well. If, if a doctor came around to examine us, each one of us outside of Christ, he'd be able to see that we are spiritually dead. There are the common signs. He'd ask questions like, does the patient find the things of God boring? That's a sign of spiritual death. Is Bible reading, is prayer, worship sermons, are they boring? Are they not worth your time? Or even further, does this person actually hate the things of God? Not just find them boring, but sometimes they can't even stand to open the scriptures. They don't want to hear about God. Maybe the doctor would say, does this person know and love the true God? Not a God that he's made up. Not a God that pleases him, but does he know and love the God of the Bible? A holy God, a just God, also a gracious God. Does this person know his sin? And when he knows the sin, does he show true repentance for what he's done? When you ask him about sin, does he even know what you're talking about? And maybe he does. But can he identify specific sins in his life? Can he tell you why they offend a holy God? And does he actually repent of those sins and believe in Jesus Christ as his only hope? That, that list that I've just given you, those are signs of spiritual death. <clears throat> Don't fool yourself as we deal with people in the world around us, in our own families, in our own workplaces. There are no spiritually disabled people. There are no seriously sick people in this world. Outside of Christ, there are only the spiritually dead. Maybe I can put it another way. The world is a cemetery. It is not a hospital. We have to have that in our minds as we go out to proclaim the gospel. We have to know the bad news that was true for us and is true in the world around us in order to be able to proclaim the good news. And there is good news because Paul says that was true of you. You were like that. You were dead. But now God made you alive together with Christ. This is the good news of the gospel that God stepped in He stepped in to save the dead. He stepped in to save you and me. And the way God saved us was by making us alive together with Christ. What Paul is describing is is more than just forgiveness of your sins. It's more than just justification, being made right with God. He is describing God changing us completely from the inside out. We need new hearts. 
We need new desires. We need new minds. We need to know and love God. John, Jesus in the Gospel of John tells us what it's like to be alive. He tells us what it means to have eternal life. And he says this is what it is. Eternal life means that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That is what God has done in making us alive together with Christ. Now, the, the, the way that we're changed is by being made alive together with Christ. Jesus was raised from the dead by His Father. And you and I benefit from His resurrection. But it's more than just benefiting from it, as if, as if Jesus is giving something. Paul says that we're made alive together with Him. We're actually sharing in Jesus' own resurrection. That means if you're united to Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit through faith, in other words, if you are saved, then what has happened is that you and I have been brought to spiritual life with Jesus. We are sharing in His resurrection life right now. And just like there are signs of spiritual death, there are also clear signs of spiritual life, spiritual resurrection life. When we love God, when we love His Word, when we love His people, when we love His worship, when we are seeking to obey Him in all areas of our life, when we are relying on Him for strength and power, when we're recognizing that our life from first to last is because of His power and His grace, and when we we have the Holy Spirit within us testifying to us that we are saved, we are now alive. These are signs of spiritual life in Jesus Christ. How does this change happen? How are we brought actually from death to life? Paul, in the next few verses, starts to focus on our problem of sin and God's gift of forgiveness in Jesus Christ. That's what we see in verses 13 to 14. Secondly, is that God forgives us in Christ. Paul writes that God has done all of this having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Paul is showing that in order for you to be made alive, in order for you to have fellowship with God, our sins have to be dealt with. There's no way to God unless our sins are dealt with. And the way that God has chosen to deal with our sins is to freely forgive them. He says that God has actually forgiven all our trespasses. All of them. This is true for a believer. Every sin that we've ever committed so far in our life, and every sin that we're going to commit until the day that we die, every single sin of God's people has been forgiven in Christ. That truth is so comforting. There is no sin in your life that God cannot forgive. No sin in your life that God cannot forgive. That is a truth that we need to believe and is a truth that we need to proclaim. When we're thinking about evangelism and outreach, sometimes what we do is we look at people around us is we look at them kind of through our own lenses of sin, where we've developed these categories of kind of the unforgivable sins. And maybe we know that person has committed adultery, or they're living with someone who's actually not their spouse. 
Maybe we know that they've done something really horrible, like murder. Maybe we see them and we know they're on drugs and addicted to something. Maybe we can tell that they're homosexual, that their lifestyle is just, it feels like just right at odds with what God is calling us to do. Those are serious sins, and I don't want to downplay the seriousness of sin, but God can and does forgive all sins. That's what He's able to do if you come to Him in repentance. And when we think about these kind of unforgivable sins, the categories we create, maybe it's helpful to realize that God hates all sin. God hates all sin. He doesn't just hate the sin of people who seem so far away, so far beyond where you and I are. He hates our sin. He hated our sin when we were His enemies, and yet He freely forgave us. Do not forget, do not write anybody off. Do not forget the forgiveness of God. Um, let me just give you an example. I'll give you a personal example of this. A personal example of God's forgiveness. A few, a few years ago, we had a man visit our church. He walked in and you could tell he, he didn't fit in. Right? He didn't fit in. He was um, culturally not like us. Lots of tattoos, all sorts of things. And you could just tell... This guy's a bad dude. He walked in and he sat down. And it turns out, the more we got to know him, he was a really bad dude. He was a murderer. He had just been released from prison, and this was the first church that he had set foot in. That man heard the gospel. He heard the gospel through the preaching. He read the gospel in the Bible. He, he moved to another city shortly thereafter. But you know what we saw in his life? We saw him saved. His sins, as bad as they seem to us, his sins were freely forgiven in Jesus Christ. If that man can be forgiven, there is nobody around us that God cannot forgive and forgive completely. But I think also as believers, we need to see God's free forgiveness for us because that frees us from regret. That frees us from the tyranny of our own sins. Do you know, as you look at your past, are there specific sins in your past that you just can't seem to shake? I don't mean just the ones that you're still struggling with. I mean the ones that you look back on and you just say, man, I wish I hadn't have done that. That was a huge mistake. Those, the consequences, I just wish I had never, ever done that. For Christians, sometimes regret can actually become a way of trying to pay for our sins. If I just feel badly enough about it now, maybe God will forgive me. Maybe I'll be able to do something to feel badly enough or to try to fix things now and God will forgive me. You don't need to do that because you can't. You cannot pay for your sins. God in His grace has forgiven you of all of your sins. This is a, this is a comforting truth of God's free and complete forgiveness. In verse 14, Paul goes on to explain then how God forgave our sins. How was he able to do that for us? He says that how he did it was by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing to the cross. The picture that that Paul has here is of God holding a piece of paper, and God has written down on that paper everything that we owe Him. That's the record of debt, or some translation, the handwriting of requirements, depending on 
um, your version of the Bible. Each one of us, though, each one of us owes God complete obedience. Wager that that's not a very popular idea these days, that we actually owe God anything. And yet God says we owe Him everything. It's the truth. We owe God all our love, all of our obedience. Jesus says that the two greatest commandments are these. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Just think about that. Did you hear how we're supposed to love God? He said, with all our heart, with all our soul, and with all our mind. We are commanded to love God completely, totally, every part of us, all the time. That command, though, doesn't just apply to Christians. doesn't just apply to us sitting here. No, every person owes God that kind of love and that kind of obedience because He made us. He's our Creator, and He's put His law in our hearts. We know who He is. Everyone actually knows who He is, and we know what pleases Him. We know what He hates. We know what those legal demands that He has placed upon us, we know what those are. Okay, just go back and read Romans 1 and how much every person, even those apart from Christ, actually know about God. Each and every single one of us, again, owes God complete love and obedience. But each one of us stands condemned by God because none of us can keep God's law. There is none righteous, no, not one. Go back to that picture that that Paul is painting here. That piece of paper that God is holding, in big letters up at the top, it has your name on it. And then there's one word next to each one of those requirements, each one of those laws, each one of those things that we owe God. And that one word in big capital letters is guilty. Guilty, 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 guilty. Or at least that's what it used to say. That's what the piece of paper used to say for every single person in Christ. And that's where Paul wants to push us here because he's saying what God has done is he's wiped that away. He has taken a big eraser and he's wiped out our guilt. And even more than that, he's actually wiped out those requirements that are condemning us. Now, we still need God's law. Don't get me wrong. When I say that he's wiping out those requirements... It doesn't mean you can do whatever you want. Just read a little further in Colossians, and you'll see a lot about Paul saying about what we need to do to live according to God's law. But God's law is not condemning us anymore. It is not there to condemn believers. It is no longer a record of our debt. It's actually a guide to our gratitude. That's what God has done as He's wiped away the requirements. Paul says the way that God has forgiven our sins, the way that He's done this, is actually by nailing it to the cross. God forgave our sins in the death of Jesus Christ. And God had to do that. He had to actually nail it to the cross because God is a holy God. He can't just do away with our sins and say, it doesn't matter. It's fine. If God did that, He wouldn't be holy anymore. And He also just can't take His righteous law and just throw it out the window and say it's okay. No, our sin... And his righteous requirements, they have to be met. They have to be dealt with. And the way that God has done this is he took his law and he took our sins 
and he nailed them to the cross of his son, Jesus Christ. When Jesus died, it's like your record of debt was nailed to the cross with him. At the cross, Jesus obeyed for you and he paid for you. Think about it, the cross is the final act of Jesus' obedience on your behalf. It's true, he lived a perfect life of obedience. And on the cross, he obeyed the will of his Father for you in the ways that you never did. He kept God's law. But the cross is also where Jesus paid for your sins. He paid for all those guilty verdicts that God has given to you. He suffered the wrath of God for your sins. Those legal demands that were written on that piece of paper And that one word that's repeated again and again, guilty, guilty, guilty. Both of those were erased. Think about it. Both of those were erased on the cross as Jesus' own blood rolled down that paper for you. What a salvation that God has given us in Jesus Christ. It is amazing to think of what God has done for us. If you have believed in Christ, if you've turn from your sin and repentance, you've asked God for forgiveness, then what Paul is saying here is true of you. It's true of you right now. And it's never going to be untrue. This is your new reality. But so often we still look at God as if he's still holding that law over our heads. If he's still, he's still looking at us, even though we're in Christ, he's still looking at us as sinners. But God is not like that parent or that friend or that boss who is trying to catch you out, who is trying to actually, you know, almost waiting for you to mess up. That's not how God treats us anymore. If he has freely forgiven us, he does not try to catch us in our sin, and he doesn't try to remind us of our failures. They have been dealt with in Jesus Christ. God is a God of abundant grace and forgiveness. When he says he's completely forgiven you, he absolutely means it. Paul's point here is that we are sharing. We are sharing in Jesus' life because we share in that forgiveness that Jesus won for us. We share in the fact that our sins are gone. They are written off in Jesus Christ. But Paul goes on to show us one more thing that we share in Jesus And third, we're going to see that God makes us share in the victory of Christ in verse 15. Paul writes that he disarmed the rulers. God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Now, I I said that we're sharing in Christ's victory in this verse, but if you listen carefully, you didn't find yourself in there, did you? You know, I heard about God, I heard about rulers and authorities, and I heard about Jesus, but not me. I didn't hear about myself there, but we are there. And we'll we'll get there. I'll show you where we're there. But Paul is showing us that actually part of the salvation that Jesus Christ has won is not really, first and foremost, about us. That's a challenge for us. God's victory in Christ is God showing his own power, his own greatness. When we look at Jesus' death, his resurrection ascension, It's easy just to focus on ourselves, that Jesus won salvation for me. And that's good. That's true. That's biblical. But there is so much more to the work of Christ. There is so much more. Part of it is described here in God's victory over his enemies. 
And God's enemies are described as the rulers and the authorities. We've seen that phrase before in Colossians. It shows up in other places like Ephesians as well. Paul is talking about Satan. He's talking about the, his fallen angels, powerful spiritual beings who are opposed to God. And God has disarmed them. He's taken away their power. This past week, we went to the Yorktown battlefield for the first time. Went to, to Surrender Field, right? Where all the British soldiers had to march up from Yorktown, and one by one, they had to throw their muskets to the ground. You know, without their muskets, all those soldiers who had been fighting so hard, they didn't pose much of a threat at all to the Americans or the French, did they? There was almost nothing that they could do now without their weapons. And something like this, but on so much of a bigger scale, has happened in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus broke the power of Satan and of sin and of death and of hell. Listen to these words from the book of Hebrews. As the author of Hebrews reflects on what Jesus has done. He says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. It's from Hebrews 2. Jesus in his own death He destroyed the devil. And in destroying the devil, he actually freed us from the power of death and the fear of death as well. This this is great news. This is good news because each one of us outside of Christ was serving the devil. We were condemned to death. We were destined for hell. But not anymore. Not anymore. God in Christ has defeated his enemies. It's true that a disarmed devil is still dangerous. And the New Testament time and time again warns us against his constant attacks. And it's true, sin still tempts us. And the world still presses in on us. But remember that in Christ, we are more than conquerors. Paul goes even further, actually. He goes even further than that. Even further than just a victory. By saying that God's enemies have been publicly shamed publicly shamed. There's a sense that at the cross, that was the high point of the devil's attacks because the Son of God hung on the cross dead. And if he stayed dead, then the devil would have won. But part of the public shaming of the devil and hell and all of God's enemies is that they're weak. They could not hold the Son of God. They couldn't do that. But part of public shaming is also that God's enemies, no matter what they did, all that they could do was fulfill God's plan and God's plan of salvation. The irony is really just stunning. The day of Pentecost, Peter says, This Jesus, who was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Even the death of Jesus Christ, or especially the death of Jesus Christ, was according to the sure plan of God. That shows us that even the most powerful enemies of God, way more powerful than those lawless men who actually crucified Christ, all those enemies did actually led without fail to their own defeat and to the salvation of God's people. 
Do you see how you share in this kind of victory of God in Christ? This victory is yours now too. Those rulers and authorities, those are your enemies. We are fighting the world, the flesh, and the devil. And God has disarmed them. He has disarmed them and he has humiliated them. He hasn't destroyed them completely yet. He's waiting until until Jesus returns. But you actually share in Jesus' victory now. That's why you and I can even be saved. Because we're not bound by Satan anymore. Jesus Christ has defeated them and he has taken us out of his kingdom and he's put us in his own kingdom, the kingdom of his beloved son. You share in Jesus' victory as you are saved. You share in Jesus' victory as you resist the devil. The only reason you can fight the devil and know that he will flee from you is because of Jesus' victory. Jesus' victory is why you can fight sin in your own life. Jesus' victory is why death holds no fear for Christians anymore. The benefits of Christ's victory are endless. And the benefits of Christ's victory are ours. As we close this morning, God's work for us in Christ should stand out so clearly from this passage. It is God's work from first to last. It is a work of grace, undeserved grace that none of us None of us in ourselves deserve this. It is only in Christ that we have any of these things. Think back to Paul's basic point in this entire passage here. He's, He's asking the Colossians this basic question, why would you want to turn to anything or anyone else? Why would you want to turn away from Christ when in Christ you have everything that you could possibly need? Outside of Christ, you're dead. You're dead in your sins. You are guilty of breaking God's commands and you are under the power of God's enemies. God has saved you from that in Christ. Why would you ever, ever, ever want to head back in that direction? The encouragement from this passage is that in Christ and in Christ alone, God has done everything that we need. He has given us so much more than we even know is true for us even more than we can imagine is true for us. And Paul's encouragement is do not turn away from Christ. Do not be tempted by the things of this world that can never satisfy you. Turn back to Christ. Hold fast to Christ. Again, because in Christ, God has done everything. He has given us everything that we need now and in the life to come. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the life and death of Jesus Christ for us. Lord, we thank you that now we are made alive together with him, that you have forgiven us our sins, you have actually defeated all of his and our enemies. Lord, we thank you for the encouragement that gives us. We pray that you would keep us holding tightly to Jesus Christ. There are things that may try to Pull us away from Him. Help us to be constant in prayer, to be faithful in in reading the Scriptures, to be faithful in worship, Lord, so that we are holding even tighter to Jesus Christ, to the salvation that we have in Him. We pray that You would teach us all to grow in our faith, to love and serve You better. And we pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.